Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Choreography, live music, and black comics round out our arts and culture show today. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. The Casbah is celebrating 35 years with live concerts. One of our philosophies is to make the the fan and the band have such a great time that they can't wait to come back again. Plus, Malishak Dance will stage its third annual Everyday Dances concert, and Black Comics Day will return to World Beat Cultural Center. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. If you're a fan of live music in San Diego, chances are you've been to the Casbah or definitely heard about it. It may not look like much from the outside, but the Kettner Boulevard venue has been home to hard rock, punk music, and more for 35 years now. Often associated with the grunge era of rock music in the early 90s, the Casbah has hosted bands like Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, and local bands like Rocket from the Crypt, who will be performing there tonight. Here's a little of their song on a rope. Tim Mays is founder of the Casbah, and he's here to talk about the venue's rich history and how it will be celebrated. Tim, congratulations on 35 years. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I never could have seen that we would be here all these years later, still uh, 
Still doing what we do. It's great. Yeah. It's really wonderful. <laughs> so, I mean, yes, three and a half decades ago, you opened a music venue in San Diego. So what inspired that decision and why was it the right time when you did it? Well, I mean, I had been putting on shows for about seven or eight years prior to opening the Casbah and early 80s, I would use rented halls all over San Diego. And uh, I opened a, another bar called the Pink Panther in 1986 with a couple friends. And at that point, I, I had gotten tired of putting on concerts because there was a lot of uh, violence back then in the punk rock scene. Um, the opportunity came up in 1989 to buy this little place on Kettner Boulevard up the block from where we are now. And uh, we decided to buy it and uh, start putting in music in there. And it was originally going to be just local bands. And there was a, a dearth of places for bands to play in San Diego. So we started getting calls from touring bands and bands from all over the country. And we started booking them. And about 1990, we started booking, uh, you know, what we do today. And the rest is history. You know, I, I started out doing it as a fan originally so you know that's that's my my inspiration was just to see see music that i liked any memorable shows to you smashing pumpkins and Lemonheads back then um a lot of the local bands that were really great like you mentioned rocket from the crypt and drive like jehu i think primus played there and uh uh no doubt played there early on and you know there's there were so many shows back then that were just fantastic and the the original casbah was a very small place it held 75 people so you know you were right up right up close to to whoever happened to be playing that night yeah i mean a lot's changed for music in general since you opened the doors to the casbah in 1989 cds and cassettes have largely been replaced by streaming so how has the san diego music scene uniquely changed since then well we've gone through a lot of different bands over those years you know there there's been a lot of different scenes the the early 90s stuff that you know coincided with the grunge era up in seattle there were a lot of local bands that were all friends together and all came up at the same time. And, you know, eventually those bands either, you know, got too big to play there or they disbanded or, you know, they, they went on to do different things. So we've probably been through, I don't know, four or five different types of music scenes over the years. It's, it's all the, the uh, cohesiveness of it is all based on bands interacting with each other and, creating a scene amongst themselves with their friends and their fans. And then, um, you know, it just, we will find some bands and we start them off, you know, when they're young and we try, if there's bands we like, we try to get them on good shows and then get them to a point where they can headline themselves. And that's happened numerous times over the years, too many times to even recollect. You know, the early nineties, it seems like it was an important period for the Casbah and and really San Diego music. What made that period so special? I think there was just an awareness, again, due to the whole success of all the bands up in Seattle that got signed and, and you know, basically took over the, the airwaves and the, the video stuff on MTV. And there were a lot of bands in San Diego that were doing similar type stuff. And so the awareness, I mean, record labels would come down and there was a lot of hype. 
uh, so a lot of people started coming out to see the bands. And like I said, the Casbah held 75 people. Sometimes we'd fit, you know, 100 in there on a good night. And it was very, very intense scene because everybody knew everybody and everybody, I don't know how people afforded it, but they went out many nights a week. And uh, it just developed like that. And it kind of spread in a grassroots manner. Um, after all the hype died down, you know, people just kept doing what they had been doing. And there were a lot of friendships developed and a lot of relationships developed with people who, as friends and as as band people, that, we, you know, some of the best friends I have are people I met during that era. Yeah. In celebration of 35 years, and of all those friendships made, how have the shows gone so far? And who's performing? Well, this month has been really great. I mean, we I put together a list back in June of bands that I would like to book for this month. And most of the bands I had on my list, I ended up being able to confirm shows with. We started off at the beginning of the month after a couple of days off after New Year's with uh, L1011 and, and uh, Starcrawler. And then we did uh, a weekend of the Dragons. Then we've got Rocket from the Crypt, Three Mile Pilot, Lucy's Fur Coat, a couple nights with the Bronx, a couple nights with Earthless. Um, it's just been, you know, all of these bands have played the club numerous times over the years. Some have gotten too big to play there anymore. Uh, some just don't play anymore. So, you know, it's it's been a fantastic month. I think we're on pace to sell out probably... 20 or 22 shows out of the, the the month so that's pretty phenomenal it's it's uh and it's been really great you know people seeing so many friends from the past and so many bands from the past and everybody's having a really great time yeah you know i the last few years have been challenging for live music the coronavirus pandemic hit and had a big impact on arts in san diego and I imagine the Casbah as well. What did you learn from those lockdown days when we couldn't gather together at a show? Well, you know, we 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 closed on March 13th was our last show, 2020. And we didn't do any live music until July 2021. Well, we figured out how to do streaming concerts, which we did for a little while. Uh, and that was great. I mean, the first, I remember the first one we did, it was like, just seeing a band, I, I forget what it was, maybe a few months later, like July of 2020. And we started doing streaming concerts on a, on a Twitch channel that we set up. And I remember, you know, the first one we did, just being there with only a handful of people, the crew and you know, my wife and a couple of close friends, because everybody was still pretty spooked about being together. But watching a band play on that stage uh, after, you know, months of not seeing anything was was spine tingling, you know, um, everybody had tears in their eyes. And so, you know, we, we learned how to do that. And then, you know, we, we sold a lot of merch during the, the lockdown. I mean, we created a couple different types of, of t-shirt designs that sold phenomenally well. And that really helped us pay the bills and keep some of our employees on staff and pay them and let enable them to, you know, continue doing their lives. Also learned a lot on how to uh, file for grants. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. we filed for a lot of different grants 
and uh, you know became pretty knowledgeable on how to do that. And you're a small venue, right, with an audience capacity of just over 200. Why do you think audiences and bands are just drawn to play at smaller, more intimate spaces like the Casbah? Well, I think because it just creates such a nice, intense bond between the musician and the and the fan. I know, I know fans love it because they can get right in you know, with the Casbah. You're standing right in front of the stage. Literally, you can reach up and touch the performer. And I think bands like it too because it gives them a, a great energy uh, rush to, to be there in front of fans who are singing along to the songs or shouting and cheering and bumping their fists up in the air and such. There's nothing like it, you know. I mean, I'm spoiled because when I go to shows, usually I'm able to watch from very close quarters. But going to a big, big show, like in an arena, there's so many distractions if you're sitting in a seat so far from the stage. You know, the people around you, the, the security people, people coming up and down the aisles and stuff. And you're so far removed from the stage the image you're watching on a video screen is bigger than the, the person you can see on stage. So being in a small venue, there's, there's nothing like it. And it seems like music venues come and go through the years. What's the secret for this venue? You know, um, that's a good question. I think we've always just treated people respectfully and professionally. And one of our philosophies is to make the the fan and the band have such a great time that they can't wait to come back again. And that's been proven year after year, after year with the bands that keep returning and love to play there. And, you know, people keep coming too. I mean, a lot of people grow out of going to see live music as often as they did when they were younger. But, you know, especially over the last few weeks in, in this month, I've seen so many people who used to, who were those people in the 90s who were out four or five nights a week. And, you know, they've all got families and kids and, and you know, stressful jobs now. But everybody who comes out, uh, whether it's once a year or once every, you know, few weeks, definitely always has a good time. Yeah. And I got to ask, 35 years ago when you decided to open this venue, why did you decide to call it the Casbah? What does that word mean? My partner, my my partner, Bob Bennett, who's passed away a few years ago, he grew up in Pittsburgh and there was a place called the Casbah in Pittsburgh that he had remembered. And he he came up with a name. Um, contrary to what a lot of people think, it didn't have anything to do with the Clash song, Rock the Casbah, um, but just came up out of my partner's memory of of growing up in Pittsburgh and seeing this place called the Casbah. Mm. So is there any Pittsburgh flavor carried out throughout the venue? No, no, <laughs> nothing, nothing like that. <laughs> well, looking ahead, what do you want to see in the Casbah's next 35 years? <laughs> um, well, that's a, that's a, that's a, something to ponder. Um, you know, I think just continuing to do what we do, you know, it's not broke, so there's nothing to fix, really. We will continue to bring bands there that, that we love and that people love and, and treat the bands properly so that they want to come back or they'll tell their other friends' bands that they what a great experience they had and, and also continue to provide, you know, the same experience for the music fans of San Diego and continue to book shows as, as bands outgrow the Casbah. We'll, we'll book them in other bigger venues in town that share the same philosophies as we do. All right. Tim Mays is the founder of the Casbah, located 
at 2501 Kettner Avenue near downtown San Diego. Check it out if you haven't had a chance. Tim, congratulations on the anniversary, and here's to many more years of music at the Casbah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a conversation with the new artistic director of Malachok Dance. When I look at San Diego and who it is now, I hope that the work we do at Malachok can be a mirror that anyone in our community might find at some point in our programming themselves in that work. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Tonight, Malachok Dance will stage its third annual Everyday Dances concert. It'll feature 10 new choreographic works by San Diego-based dance artists, including founding director John Malachok. Performances will run through this Sunday. The Contemporary Dance Company also welcomed its new artistic director, Christopher K. Morgan. KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans spoke with Morgan about stepping into the new role, Everyday Dances, and his intersectional approach to dance. Take a listen. So you are the new artistic director at Malachok Dance, and this is a, a role that was held for decades by the company's founder, John Malachok. You're new to the role, but you're not new to Malachok. In the late 90s, you were a dancer for them. Can you tell us about that and what it means to kind of come home to this company? Absolutely. It's a huge, exciting honor to come back and return in this new capacity. In 1995, at a summer intensive that John Malachok and the company were hosting at Balboa Park, where they used to be in residence at that time, I dropped into a technique class. And that class and John's invitation to stay for the entire summer intensive literally changed the course of my life. At the time, I was a pretty young and inexperienced dancer. And that invitation opened up a whole new world to me of what concert dance could look like. And so very quickly, it became an all-consuming passion. And I spent three years from 95 to 98 dancing with John. And it just sort of catapulted me into all of these other opportunities that I've had since then. And so the homecoming feels really meaningful and, and quite full circle. It literally is a full circle. Here I am 28 years later, artistic director of the company that my career began in. I want to ask you about your background, not just as a dancer, but as a choreographer. What is your approach to creating a piece of dance? As a choreographer, usually my inspiration initially comes from the things I'm observing or feeling around me in my own life. That might be the impact of some of the many global crises that we're having. It's often navigating identity as a real multi-hyphenate, both ethnically and also in a lot of other ways that I identify. 
a lot of my own personal work as a human is to navigate these differences and find my own way and place in the world. And for me, choreography and artistic expression and what we put on stage is a really interesting and meaningful way to explore that. Most recently, I've been in a really deep research that's reconnecting my own artistry to the hula that I danced as a child with my family and the predominantly Western dance forms of modern ballet and jazz that became the bulk of my performing career. And so in that intersection, it's not just the physical forms that I'm curious about, but also how do I fully embrace and accept the multi-hyphenate identity ha I have as a Hawaiian, Japanese, Chinese, German, Irish person. And that, you know, parts of my identity, for example, were the colonizers of the land that I'm so attached to and that my parents grew up in. So this kind of identity work is really interesting to me. And it's not just my identity that folds into the work. The collaborators that I work with also are frequently asked to bring themselves and their own stories to the work. In addition to that, going back to some of what I was saying earlier about sort of what's going on in the world around us, you know, I've done work about global climate change. We did this really interesting work about water where the county that I used to live in on the East Coast started to tax people that had rain barrels for not using the county water system. So we made a piece that was all about water collection and it rained on stage with the water that we collected in our yards and balconies. So these types of things, identity work, social justice issues, but all with a strong physical background and integrating a lot of different technologies as well, projection design, visual art, and costume design. I love that. And I'm wondering how that kind of intersectional approach translates, if it does, into this new work of leading a company as artistic director. Absolutely, it does. You know, John Molly Perrier, the executive director of Malashock Dance and the board, were very thoughtful about what the future of Malashock Dance would look like and wanting it to shift from its founder-driven kind of single choreographic voice to a mission-driven organization that's serving many, many folks. And in that, for me, coming into this role, I hope that the work that we produce really reflects the broad San Diego community that we're a part of. And that includes, you know, the huge Latinx community that's here, the small variations of identity within that as well that need to be honored and respected. What is different for a Chicana, Chicanx person, as opposed to like that broader umbrella term of Latinx. We also have a really strong LGBTQIA community in San Diego. And I think that's an important thing to reflect in our work as well. And so how can we at Malashock Dance provide opportunities for these different voices to express themselves in the curatorial practice that we are embarking on? Interestingly, I think that the choreographic array that we see in Everyday Dances 3, this concert that we have coming up at the end of January, is a great example of that. Within the choreographers that were selected for this, there are 10 pieces on the program. We have a range of ages, a range of points within their career spectrum from sort of earlier career arts makers to quite well-established dance makers. We also have a range of identities when it comes to ethnicity and race and even sexual orientation and how folks identify themselves. So I think when I look at San Diego and who it is now, I hope that the work we do at Malashot can be a mirror that anyone in our community might find at some point in our programming themselves in that work. 
So let's talk a little more about this weekend's performances. It's Everyday Dances 3, and this will be your first show officially in place as artistic director. Can you tell us first what is meant by the production's title, Everyday Dances? That is such a great question because I wondered about that. It was a title that existed before I joined the organization. And it started with, um, in its first incarnation, a partnership with the Mingue over in Balboa Park, um, the museum there. And loosely translated, the word Mingue means sort of arts for everyone or common art or everyday art. And so I think in that initial partnership, there was this idea to share this title with the program. And here we are a couple of iterations later and it's stuck. It's a great question to ask about the title because it's something that we've just been interrogating. We don't have a new title yet, but we are sort of shifting around the idea of what to call it. And that's because we want to continue to make sure we're reflecting the broader San Diego dance community. And even though dance is for everyone and it's common and it should be accessible, we also want to honor the exquisiteness of these artists. It was incredibly difficult to select the choreographers for this because we had an applicant pool of over 30. And because there was a commitment to two artists, one from the company and one piece by John Malashok, we actually only had eight slots available. So we had a curatorial panel made up of myself, John, executive director Molly Perrier, one of our board members and also an incredible faculty member, Maria Benjamin, and one of the company dancers, Lauren Christie. So the five of us reviewed all over 30 applicants and had a rubric in place to think about a lot of different lenses through which we might look at this work. So there are some familiar local names in this list of choreographers. There's Jessica Rabanzo Flores and Kamla Sampan, but there's a few that I haven't seen before. Can you tell us about a few of the works in the show? Absolutely. So Jessica, who also is a dancer with the company and has a long history here in San Diego with other organizations as well, she's made this beautiful work that's, um, I want to be careful because I'm going to be talking about female empowerment, but I'm male identified. She shared that she's been thinking in her own life about the role of care with and for other women and for herself. And so in reflecting on that and reading a book about womanhood, she conjured this piece, and I say conjured because it starts with a solo that she performs and it does feel like she is conjuring into the space all of these other strong women that are, as she identifies them, her wolf pack. And so then four other dancers, all female identified, enter the space and kind of continue that development of a community. I think it's one, just a really beautiful dance to look at, but also two, I'm curious and anxious to hear audience feedback in terms of you know, for other women identified folks, how do they see, feel and resonate with that? And also for those of us that aren't female identified, you know, what meaning do we find in this? What does it bring up for us that might be exciting or uncomfortable or difficult? And then Kamla's work has just been incredible to witness, both because it's a beautiful work choreographically speaking, but also as a fellow choreographer, it really excited me to see how Kamla was able to elicit things I hadn't seen yet and the two dancers that she's working with. I want to zoom out just a little bit. What has changed in, in the landscape for contemporary dance these last couple of years? And how, if at all, do you think the dance form and the community is evolving? Of course, all industries and all businesses have been greatly impacted by the last few years. When I look at the performing arts and dance, 
I feel like we hear a lot about the crises that we're all facing and particularly in the live performing arts, you know, audiences slowly making their way back to theaters, dwindling resources. I sometimes wonder if that's a bit of a overhyped media message that only represents a certain part of the field. And what I mean by that is, Yes, many of our largest institutions, our big opera companies, our very large and storied museums, other large institutions like that are struggling. And I want those places to succeed. At the same time, small and mid-sized institutions that are deeply connected with their community, I think are actually doing well in both the recovery from COVID and in the wake of the call to racial and social justice that we've seen since George Floyd's murder. To be more specific even, I think what we see in small and mid-sized arts organizations is that if they are deeply connected with their community, and that might be students, that might be families, that might be audience members, that might be fellow artists, in Malachok Dance's case, it's all of those communities. If we are deeply connected with them, the desire to come back and engage in person has been strong. And so I think when we hear the crisis mode and the media at large, if we can zoom in, you asked me to zoom out and I'm going to zoom in. If we can zoom into what's happening in small neighborhoods, communities, parts of a city, small and mid-sized cities that sometimes don't always get the shine of the national spotlight, <laughs> maybe it's not so much a crisis. Maybe it's a reprioritization of how we're connecting with one another. And that might just be more well-suited in a smaller mid-sized venue where we can know our neighbors a little better and our fellow artists than in a large institution where it can sometimes feel anonymous and even in the wake of COVID, a little scary. What then are your hopes for Malashak this coming year and also a little bit further into the future? Yeah, definitely. So I see the work of Malashak dance as three sides of a triangle. And if any one of these three sides weren't there, it wouldn't work. One side is the company. And I think that's been the longest standing and most public facing part of the organization. And so within that, we've had John's work. We'll continue to have some of John's work, adding mine. Programs like Everyday Dances, creating opportunities for San Diego area choreographers to be supported in their self-expression. And I'm looking into national and international commissioning of choreographers. So that's the company arm. And equally important to that is education. So that's a second side of our three-sided triangle. So we have our school here at Liberty Station that serves youth and adults from a wide range of genres. In addition to that, we also have education that we bring out into the community. We have a relationship with San Diego Unified School District and Chula Vista School District, where we bring dance education into the schools where young people are, trying to bridge the gap that sometimes has been left between other academic subjects and creative self-expression. Looking forward, as you asked, to continue to grow, I'm really interested in also other opportunities to get into different aspects of the community. What would it look like if we're providing dance classes at community centers, at boys and girls clubs, at places in North County that aren't part of our normal circuit, just to really try and get dance into everyone's lives. And then the third arm of this triangle that I think is so important is what I'm starting to imagine calling professional development. With 10 community colleges and universities in the broad San Diego area that have dance programs, 
and not a lot of professionally paid opportunities for dancers and dance makers. I'm curious about if we can be in deep dialogue with those institutions and more importantly, the students that are studying dance in them, how can we create professional development opportunities for them to really understand and learn what it would be like to have a career in dance in this vibrant, beautiful city? So we're looking at things like apprenticeships and internships, but also seminar series around peer-to-peer grant writing, different approaches to arts administration, financial literacy. These are things that sometimes are academic programs in the pursuit of honing craft don't spend as much time on, but they're the real nuts and bolts of living within this you know, field. So I see these three sides creating the template of what the future looks like. I think it's an ambitious series of plans that we're starting to put together. So when you ask about timeline, you'll see some of that implemented this season and next. And then some of that, I think, as we really get to know what the needs are in the community more deeply, and find the resources to support these programs. It may be, you know, over the next two to three years as well that some of this comes into place. That was KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans speaking with Christopher K. Morgan, Malashock Dance's new artistic director. The company's concert, Everyday Dances 3, will start tonight and run through Sunday. You can catch it at the Malashock Dance Studio Theater in Liberty Station. Coming up, Black comics will be celebrated at World Beat Cultural Center. Let me just make a, a bat signal for black creators out there that they can all congregate and come to. And, and even though it's called Black Comics Day, I really emphasize that this is a show for anyone from every culture to come and enjoy. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Despite flooding from recent storms, the show must go on. Black Comics Day will return to World Beat Cultural Center. The now two-day event is happening February 3rd and 4th, highlighting Black creators in the comics industry. KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando spoke with founder Keith and Jones at World Beat Center as people were still cleaning up from the rain and flooding. Keithan, you are on the eve of your sixth Black Comics Day. So how does it feel and where are you at? I honestly don't know how I got this far, but I'm feeling good and the vibe is feeling right and I'm ready to get the sixth annual show going here in San Diego at World Beat Center. And what do you have planned for this year's Black Comics? You usually have panels, so what are those? We have two panels as usual, one for Saturday and one for Sunday. On Saturday, we're gonna discuss anime and manga. So how black culture has been portrayed in the anime genre or platform, because obviously Japan is a whole other country. And so a lot of what they learn about black culture, like a lot of people, is through popular media. 
So there's pros and cons to that. So we're going to discuss how we're being portrayed internationally. And I think it'll be an interesting panel. We have Brian J. Lambert, publisher for a company called Wingless Entertainment. We have Robert Roach, who writes and draws a comic called Roach. And we have Matthew Jones, all the way from Virginia. So he actually does a quote unquote black manga. So um, we're gonna pick their brains and get their thoughts on how they feel about the whole crossover of black culture and anime in Japan and all that, all that good stuff. And Sunday we have a panel with Cheryl Morrow, who is the daughter of Willie Morrow, the inventor of the California Curl, commonly known as the Jerry Curl. He also is a, the uh, publisher and um, founder of San Diego Monitor, which is a black paper that's been in San Diego for many years, even before I was around. And so he's passed now, so she's continuing his legacy. And she's also an expert in black hair care, and so she has a lot of insight on that as it pertains to business and the black community and black folks in general as, as uh, our history is here in San Diego. So um, I think that's gonna be a great panel that not only features her history, but also her, the information she can impart on up and coming entrepreneurs. And part of the thing about your panels also is about this notion of empowerment. Right. Really, that's what the genesis of Black Comics Day. I felt that Black Comics Day is a, is a way for me to create a platform for creators of color that don't necessarily have opportunities in the, in the more mainstream zones as far as getting their work out there. I thought Black Comics Day would be a beacon to bring the audience to them versus them reaching out and hoping someone bites or whatever. So I just thought, let me just make a, a bat signal for black creators out there that they can all congregate and come to. And, and even though it's called Black Comics Day, I really emphasize that this is a show for anyone from every culture to come and enjoy. So come on down and, and enjoy a, day, a couple of days of black culture, free of charge, free parking here at the uh, World Bee Center. People may think of comics as superheroes, but talk about the artists that you have represented here and the fact that the kinds of comics they're creating are a really diverse lot. Geez, again, they covered a gamut as far as themes. Obviously you have the superhero element and then you have autobiographies and you have characters based on real historical figures. Obviously there's Malcolm X, there's African deities. They are culturally important to folks uh, in Africa and obviously across the world. So there's stories based on those deities. There's comedic stories, you know, satires, basically, I don't want to say making fun, but highlighting some of our colorful characters in the black community. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, there's just, uh, just, just, you know, whatever you're into, I'm sure you'll find it as far as genres and subject matter. I mean, there's men and women and young folks, older folks creating these comics. So um, I'm sure you'll find something that you can relate to. Well, I think last year alone, I picked up a comic book set in a strip club, the, exactly. the Roach, <laughs> which was kind of like a film noir detective, right. and Rodney Barnes's Blackula, right. which is, you know, based on a 70s exploitation right. film. That we was even have uh, Kevin Grievous. He's here with his uh, personal creations, comic book creations, uh, and Gosh, I can't even name the stuff. He's got like a gamut of stuff. He's worked for Marvel, DC, Image, all the major companies uh, working on books like Spider-Man, Iron Man, Black Panther, Avengers, you name it. He, he'll be here on hand. So yeah, like you said, there's just 
smorgasbords of subject matter, you know. And you are a comics creator yourself, and putting on this event must take a lot of time. So how do you juggle both of these things and manage to I don't know. find the time? <laughs> I, don't, I really don't know how I manage it. It's, uh, I know it's a lot of work, and it's a challenge that I'm still trying to figure out balancing work and, and life, you know. And, you know, being married with kids, that's another element that I have to keep in check. It's been a challenge, but um, I love doing this, so it's work, but it's also not work. I draw energy just from the love of doing it. I'm managing, I'll put it that way, I'm managing, but um, I really do want to figure out a way to get back to my personal book, which is The Power Nights. And I apologize to the fans of The Power Nights because it's like really late getting that last issue installed. I'm working on it. It's in, it's, there's pages there. It, it's happening, but it's, it's, you know, I'm trying to help out a lot of the other folks and open up doors for us before I go full on with my own projects. Um, but, but they're happening. And tell us a little bit about Kid Comics. Uh, kid. Kids, that stands for the kid and you never die because um, a lot of the stuff I, I was into when I was 10 years old, 11 years old, little, little squire. I'm still into it. I'm just now at the point where I can implement some of my imagination into the real world in the form of books or films or what have you. Back in the sixth grade, my teacher asked the class to write, if we could have anything we wanted for Christmas, what would it be, right? So I wrote a paragraph about how I would like to have my own comic printed one day. And she surprised me by actually making that happen because she knew a local San Diego printer. And I went to Los Altos Elementary School, by the way. Yeah, she surprised me with that, and uh, I went and made, a, <laughs> I made my own sequel to uh, Star Wars. Empire Strikes Back had already come out, so it was, it was a follow-up to Empire Strikes Back called When, when Monsters Pray. And so uh, she had them printed up, and they had the news media come and interview me, just like you're doing now. And I was super shy. They kept asking me why I like drawing, and I, it confused me because I was like, because I like drawing. What's, what, why are you asking me this? <laughs> but anyway, the paper at the time had the headline that they did for me was called Kid Comics Keithan. So that kind of just stuck with me. So fast forward to 2013 when I was putting the company together, uh, I was like, what should I call it? And then I remember that headline. I was like, yeah, maybe I'll just go with, with, I'll go with that. Yeah, KID. And then I came up with the acronym, The Kid in You Never Dies, based around that whole story. And uh, KID is basically a publishing company that my vision for it is not only to publish my own comics, but eventually license other folks' work and help them get their work out there. And not just black folks, but just artists in general that I feel that they have a good, if I feel that your project has legs and it has, a chance to really be something big and, and I'm in a position to help you do that, that's, that's what KID is going to be about. Since you've been doing Black Comics Day for a number of years, what kind of impact have you seen that this convention has had on people? When the show is happening and I'm at my table drawing and selling my books or whatever I'm doing, talking to folks, it's hard for me to walk around and really get the full impact of the show. So what I hear is the aftermath. I get the word of mouth after it's over and I have not heard one negative thing about the show yet. People are seem to be ecstatic about it. They're really surprised that it exists. They're surprised to see artists like myself doing this stuff because like I said, it's not really reported on that much. You hear about, obviously you hear about people like Stan Lee and Marvel and Disney and everything they're doing on the larger stage, which is, which is fine. 
but there's a whole slew of creators out there, particularly creators of color, which is what this show is based on, that are chugging away trying to get up to that level. And they just need a chance. They just need some sunshine put on them. And um, so people basically are just happy that this, this show exists. And personally, I've seen people come up to me really emotional about it, like, wow, I can't, this is so fantastic and I can't believe that this is, this is here and I love it and all this stuff, which is kind of, I wasn't really expecting that kind of response myself. I'm like, really? I'm like, okay, okay. So it just encourages me to keep going. So I guess that's why I'm on my sixth year, just, you know, based on that response. And over the years, has it gotten any easier? Are people more willing to partake <clears throat> in it or support it? It's still a lot of work to put it together. I don't feel like I have to work as hard to convince people to be a part of it. I guess to answer your question, it's trending in the right direction. I would like the school system to be hip to it a little more and because I would love to run some, some programs for the, for the school, the kids, because I know there's a lot of artists like me that are out there that probably don't know that there's outlets for them to show their stuff and maybe even possibly get work. If I can get a little work with the school system a little more in that respect, I think it'd be great to have an annual program where young artists can know that they can go and, hey, that's a place I can go and show my work and get my career going. Because like I said, there'll be professional artists here, not just people who draw, but people who write, people who produce. And you never know, you might be that talented kid that sparks their interest and want to keep in touch with you and get, and get your career going. Because I got started at age 16. I showed my stuff at San Diego Comic-Con. And that the year before that, I didn't even know how to get into the industry. I didn't even know there, was, there were conventions until my dad surprised me by taking me to one when I was 15. And walking around, I, people kept telling me, oh, you got to put a portfolio together to show these editors. Oh, really? Okay. So the next year, um, that's what I did. I gathered all my, all my little, what I thought was good. And I walked around and got, actually got hired by Apple Comics at the time. And they put me on a Dracula story. And I was off to the races, you know. Had a lot of bumps and, bumps and, and <laughs> ups and downs on the way here, but, uh, but it, it was a good start, you know. And for people coming to this, especially young people who maybe want to have a career in comics, people are very accessible in terms of the artists and publishers who come to your convention. For sure. That's how San Diego Comic-Con first started when it was smaller. Um, and Comic-Cons in general, they, they were more intimate. You could sit there and have long conversations with the artists. But obviously, as time's gone on, San Diego Com Comic-Con has become this huge event. So it's hard for the artists, for them to just sit there and conversate with folks because you got a line of people who want to have their chance to meet them as well. So I understand that. But this is, very, this is still a small show where you can come in and get personal with the artists and like I said, develop relationships with them that may lead to whatever, you know, some kind of magic in the future. And what currently is the biggest challenge in putting this on each year? Just funding, just, you know, because everything has to be paid for, you know, the tables and the, the setup and the, spa the space and everything that's attached to putting the show on. So it's just the financial part, because I don't want to put too much of the burden on the artists themselves. I know every convention you have to pay for your table and your chairs and your whole thing, you know, to use the space. And I try to keep it reasonable and affordable for the artists. Because I know how it is, being an artist myself, that it's, artists don't generally have a lot of money to throw around. And they're struggling, you know, the term struggling artist is 
<laughs> Unfortunately, it's a real thing. And so um, I try to make it affordable for them. But um, at the same time, I do have to pay for putting this thing together. And so I, uh, a lot of times I have to come out of my own pocket. Well, like I said, I believe in it. So it's a gamble I'm willing to take. And you are getting a lot of support here from World Beat Center. Oh, for sure. Mankata Dredd Cheatham, who owns the place, she saw what I was doing and she coerced me to bring it over here to the World Beat. And um, I'm glad she did because it's a great location. We're right next to the San Diego Zoo and we have Balboa Park. Uh, the show itself is free. So we're not taxing you just to show up and uh, come in and support the artists with all that extra money you've saved. <laughs> I think San Diego in general is supportive when it comes to the, to the arts. For some reason, San Diego has been a strong, has a strong comic book community. I don't know why, maybe because it's uh, import, you know, with the Navy, the military folks here from coming from all over the world. There's just been a strong culture in the arts for as long as I've been here. Well, thank you very much for talking about Black Comics Day. Thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Black Comics Day founder Keith and Jones. The free event takes place February 3rd and 4th at the World Beat Cultural Center in Balboa Park. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. The Roundtable is here tomorrow at noon, and if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. Before we go, a big thanks to the Midday Edition team, producers Juliana Domingo, Andrew Bracken, and Brooke Ruth, art segment producers Beth Accomando and Julia Dixon-Evans, technical producers Rebecca Chacon, Ben Redlosk, and Brandon Trufa, who just joined the team. Welcome aboard, Brandon. The theme music you're hearing is from San Diego's own Surefire Soul Ensemble. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend, everyone. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.